Reach Freaks. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The technology we use on a daily basis has seemingly made things so much easier in all of our lives. Take, for instance, the creation of mobile applications we use on a near-daily basis. Whether Spotify for easy music listening or Amazon for online shopping. Each provides a niche service, many of which exploded in popularity during the pandemic due to the sheer convenience of being able to have pretty much anything your heart desires delivered directly to your front door. And while many of these mobile apps have made life a little easier in certain areas, they aren't without their faults. Some people have mistakenly logged in through a third-party link and had all of their sensitive information stolen. In one example, children who were utilizing the YouTube Kids app, which was presumed to be harmless, were searching videos back in February of 2019 when they fell subject to a widespread hoax called the Momo Challenge, where internet trolls superimposed images of an intensely scary avatar into seemingly innocuous children's content, some of which contained instructions for the children to harm themselves or to engage in or create hazardous situations in their homes. But it was a horrendous crime in March of that same year that changed the very way we look at how some services ordered through these convenient mobile applications make us question just how far some people are actually willing to go to take advantage of our inherent trust and over-reliance upon the convenience of technology. March of 2019, 21-year-old Samantha Josephson was preparing for graduation during her senior year at the University of South Carolina. The New Jersey native had been working on completing her bachelor's degree in political science at the time and had just received word that she was accepted at Drexel University in Philadelphia, where she planned to continue graduate studies at the Thomas R. Klein School of Law on full scholarship. The pieces of her life were now finally coming together. Samantha aspired to one day become an attorney, and that dream was now firmly within her reach. For the most part, besides the typical stresses that came with being a college student, life was going great. Samantha's parents and sister back home in Robbinsville, New Jersey, were extremely proud of her for sticking to her goals, and were even more ecstatic that she would be attending graduate school closer to home. But on Thursday, March 28th, Samantha had received some upsetting news regarding the health of a close family member, and the news itself was weighing heavily on her mind. Many of her close friends, as well as her roommates, were planning to go to the Five Points area right next to University Hill in order to celebrate and let loose prior to their upcoming graduation. But Samantha wasn't quite feeling up to it. She wanted to stay home and have her boyfriend Greg drive her up to her apartment. She texted him and said, I really need you to be with me tonight. Both Samantha and Greg had spent a good portion of the day on the phone with one another. Greg, who met Samantha two years earlier at the University of South Carolina, was now roughly two and a half hours away in Mount Pleasant, where he was visiting with family and doing his best to comfort Samantha from afar. 
the two often talked about their future together. And while they were temporarily apart, Greg was planning on moving to Philadelphia to be near Samantha, where she was planning to attend law school. All the while, he could look into marketing jobs in the area. Although he wasn't able to make the trip up from Mount Pleasant on that specific day, he did suggest that Samantha go out with her friends to try to take her mind off things. What did you tell her? Um, I told her to get her mind off of it, to go out with her friends, that she had just worked so hard, got into law school. You know, she deserved to have a night to celebrate that and have fun with her friends. I just told her to go out and have fun that night. Greg also explained to Samantha that he would be seeing her just two days later on the 30th when he got back into town from visiting family. Eventually, Samantha agreed to go out and try to let loose for a little bit, knowing that Greg was only a phone call or text away and in the worst case scenario that she could lean on her friends for support and love if things got to be too much. Later that evening, Samantha texted Greg to let him know they were heading out. From Mount Pleasant, Greg was able to track Samantha's phone via the Find My Friends app as he watched her friend group arrive at their other friend Edgar's house. The plan was to stop at Edgar's before departing to the Five Points District. When the group eventually arrived at Five Points, they all went to one of their favorite bars, the Bird Dog arriving at around 12.30 a.m. early Friday morning on the 29th. The group ordered drinks and hung out inside of the bar, listening to music and vibing off one another as college-aged students do. But her friends soon noticed that Samantha was hanging out in the corner alone on her phone. Although the group of friends were there for a night of fun and relaxation, after a hard year of grinding in their academic studies, none of them faulted Samantha for wanting a little alone time. With all she had been through recently, they were glad she was out with them and that they could be there for her in the event she was ready to talk about what was going on. But at around 2 o'clock in the morning, Samantha decided to call it a night and wanted to head home. She pulled up the Uber app on her phone, entering the address of The Hub at 1426 Main Street where her apartment was. She quickly found a nearby driver who had a lower rate of fare to get her back home. It was only a two-mile drive back to her apartment from the bird dock, a drive that was only anticipated to take around seven minutes. But since the group all took a rideshare to the Five Points District, Samantha was on her own to find a ride home, unless she wanted to wait around for her roommates and friends to finish their night out. After eventually deciding to order the Uber, Samantha called her boyfriend Greg at about 2.04 a.m., at that point, she was leaving the bar. Um, she told me she had called an Uber, and she was waiting on that to go back home to the hub. At around 2.10, Samantha was standing outside on the sidewalk on Hardin Street, right outside of the bird dock, patiently waiting for her Uber driver to show up. As she waited, a large group of college-age adults were standing nearby in a group, smoking and socializing with one another. At 2.12 a.m., a black Chevy Impala pulled into an empty parking spot next to where Samantha was standing, and she got into the back passenger side door. After getting into the Uber, Samantha texted Greg to let him know that she was finally on her way home. After receiving the text, Greg once again opened his Find My Friends app and was watching to make sure that she had arrived back home safely. But within just moments, something seemed off to Greg. He watched as Samantha's phone was going in the opposite direction of the hub. Having previously lived there himself, Greg was familiar with that Uber route and had taken it himself plenty of times, 
He assumed that Samantha and the group were maybe heading back to their friend Edgar's house prior to dropping her off at the hub. The problem, however, was that Samantha's phone continued traveling beyond Edgar's house. It was around this point that Greg texted Samantha, but received no reply. Both he and Samantha used iMessage's read receipt feature, so he quickly noticed that she hadn't even read the message. Greg then attempted to call Samantha, but her phone would only ring once before going straight to voicemail. By 2.30 a.m., he noticed that Samantha had stopped sharing her location with him, which hadn't been the case for the entirety of their relationship. After he tried calling her again, the call went straight to voicemail without a ring. He noticed that the last location of Samantha's phone pinged to Montgomery Avenue, roughly four miles away from her apartment. Greg began to wonder if Samantha had potentially left her phone in the Uber and that the driver had shut it off to get back to their fare. At around 3 a.m., Greg began reaching out to Samantha's roommates, asking if they had seen or heard from her, but they weren't even back at their apartment yet and came to the same potential conclusion that Samantha had probably just dropped her phone somewhere. As the 5 a.m. hour crept in, Greg still hadn't heard from Samantha or her roommates and assumed she had made it home safely. Being that it was so late and that he had a full day of helping family and hitting the gym, Greg decided to call it a night eventually passing out. When he awoke later that morning at around 11 a.m., he noticed that he had some missed calls from Samantha's roommate, Carly. When Greg called Carly back, she explained that Samantha was nowhere to be found and that it appeared she hadn't even made it back home in the early morning hours at all. His initial concerns quickly turned into panic and Greg began driving the roughly two and a half hours up to Columbia to look for Samantha. As Greg pulled into the hub's parking lot, he saw that a Columbia police cruiser was already there. When he got into the apartment, a female officer began speaking with him and asked if she could speak to him outside next to her patrol car. Greg gave the information he had from the evening before, explaining that both he and Samantha had talked on the phone prior to her getting into the Uber and him tracking her location. After speaking to the police officer, the next step for Greg and Samantha's roommates was to head down to Montgomery Avenue, where her phone had last pinged. They started going door to door, asking if anyone in the area had seen or heard anything suspicious the evening prior, but no one had. Those who weren't going door to door were searching the ground and sidewalks for any evidence that showed Samantha may have been in the area. When Greg and the group of friends came up empty on their Montgomery Avenue search, they all decided to head back to the Five Points District and try to retrace Samantha's footsteps, looking for any clues as to where she may have possibly have gone. After that, we went to the Five Points area um, to see if we could ask some of the managers to look at their surveillance footage to see if uh, she had gotten in a car, to see which way she went, anything to, you know, kind of give us a little inkling of where she might be. We went to Breakers first because it has a pretty pretty big view of the main street of five points. They didn't have anything. So then we went to Burdog and that's when we saw the footage of her getting into the black Chevy Impala. Upon seeing the footage of Samantha entering the black Chevy Impala, the group notified law enforcement of their findings and began searching the five points district for a vehicle matching that description. Eventually they found one, but after looking through the windows of the vehicle, nothing stood out as suspicious. Now that they were armed with this new information, some of the group headed back to Montgomery Avenue to look for the black Chevy Impala, 
Greg spoke with Samantha's parents, Seymour and Marcy, who told him they were soon to be arriving in Columbia as well to help search for their daughter. They told Greg they'd be in the area around 9.30 p.m. that evening. When Seymour and Marcy Josephson eventually did arrive in town, they headed directly for the Columbia Police Station to speak with investigators who were actively working on Samantha's missing persons case. When Greg spoke with them, both parents informed him of their plans, and in a subsequent call, one of the investigators contacted Greg and asked him to come down to the station. Her parents had driven down, and I was in contact with them to meet them at the police station. Um, the investigator told me to come to the police station as well. They took me into a room and asked me further questions. After Greg provided the investigators with the information they were requesting, they led him down to the lobby of the police station. When he walked through the doors, he was surprised to see that Samantha's roommates were there waiting. It was well after midnight at this point, and he began to assume that things were more serious than he knew. As the group of friends talked, the investigators pulled them all into a conference room where Seymour and Marcy Josephson were waiting. Well, they, we waited for about 10, 15 minutes, uh, and then they led us into what I would call a conference room, and there were Mr. and Mrs. Josephson sitting there looking distraught. I, first thing that went through my head was, I hope their look is just because they haven't found her yet. Because Greg had been questioned and hadn't been informed of any additional findings in the ongoing investigation, he was hopeful that police received news on her whereabouts. Investigators with the Columbia Police Department did, in fact, have information on where Samantha was. It just wasn't the news any of them were expecting or hoping for. How do you solve a crime in reverse when you believe that someone was murdered but have no clue who the victim was? We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill, if it's possible. How are we going to do that? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. They broke the news to us right there. And just after that, you know, I just broke down, felt my legs clash from under me, and, you know, just kind of black, you know, almost black out, just with disbelief. During the early morning hours of March 29th, Anders Lee of Turbyville, South Carolina, woke up and began getting ready for a long day of turkey hunting. He was supposed to be meeting up with his friend, Edward Knowlton, early. But by the time the two friends met up, they had gotten a late start on the day. Sometime around noon, after spending a few hours hunting fields in the Turbyville area, Anders and Edward decided they would head down to the latter's family property, some 10 minutes south in New Zion. Edward's family had property with large grazing fields they were familiar with, where they regularly hunted deer, birds, and turkey. When Anders and Edward got into New Zion, they drove south to Black Bottom Road, where Edward's parents lived. As they cruised down the graded dirt road, they decided to head to the house for drinks and snacks prior to heading out to the fields. After retrieving some drinks and food, the two got back into their vehicle and headed back down Black Bottom Road from the direction in which they just came. 
When they got to the middle of the dirt road, they took a left onto a field access road and pulled over. Anders got out of the truck and took his binoculars out to look out at one of the fields. He figured while Edward was getting things ready in the vehicle, he could do a quick scan of the field to try and locate some turkeys. After a 10 to 15 minute walk next to the field, he was unable to locate any turkeys and began walking back to the truck. But as Anders was heading back, something caught his eye to the left of where the truck was parked. I guess I was just looking through the woods and something caught my eye to the left. I saw something I wasn't sure what it was. So I stopped and I kept looking. And then uh, I guess the more I looked at it, the more it started looking like a body. I guess we didn't expect to see something like that, you know, turkey hunting especially, you know, out in the middle of nowhere like that. And uh, so I took a couple steps to get a better viewpoint because there was trees and stuff. And uh, that's when uh, we decided we needed to call somebody. Upon realizing they were now staring at a body, Anders and Edward decided to call Bubba Morris, a man who lived nearby and who worked for the South Carolina Department of Natural Resources. Because of where they were at, they weren't sure how to direct law enforcement to their location. When Bubba arrived, he assessed the situation and kept the scene clear while waiting for law enforcement to arrive on scene. Both Anders and Edward made sure to keep a safe distance the entire time they were there as to not contaminate the crime scene. For Anders, the situation itself was odd because New Zion is an unincorporated area of Clarendon County composed mainly of residential housing and farmland. I mean, it's not somewhere you just end up there. I mean, there's just farmland and woods. No, uh, there's really nothing in New Zion or, I mean, no reason you would just end up there. When Clarendon County Sheriff's deputies arrived on scene, they realized they were going to need to contact SLED or the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, which would send down a team of forensic investigators to assist. When crime scene investigators eventually arrived on scene, they noticed that the wooded area surrounding the body had already been taped off by the Clarendon County's deputies. Those deputies advised the CSI that there were beer bottles and cigarette butts nearby on the ground on Black Bottom Road. Lieutenant Todd Schenk wanted to take a step-by-step approach when photographing the scene. He began taking photos of Black Bottom Road leading up to the farmer access path. While he was taking photographs, his partner, sled agent Delilah Jasek Serencian, was marking the beer bottles and cigarette butts with evidence flags. They worked in unison with Lieutenant Schenk handling the photography and geotagging locations, while agent Jasek Serencian was marking and collecting the evidence. Eventually, the pair asked the Clarendon County Sheriff's deputies to exit the scene so they could photograph the victim without law enforcement presence in the photographs. As they began taking photos and observing the body while waiting for the Clarendon County coroner, Bucky Mock, to arrive on scene, they identified the victim as an adult female who appeared to have clearly suffered from numerous sharp force injuries. The victim's blouse was pulled up over her head as she lay face down on the ground. Her right arm laid across her chest while her left arm lay underneath her body. Lieutenant Shank and Agent Jasek Serencian were able to discern that it was likely the crime had occurred somewhere else and that the body was dumped in this location as there was a general lack of blood around the body, yet the victim's clothing was heavily saturated with blood. When the coroner had finally arrived on scene and conducted his preliminary investigation, he allowed Lieutenant Shank and Agent Jasek Serencian 
to check the body and photograph additional findings. They then noticed what appeared to be additional sharp force injuries and striations on the body, something that would indicate the victim was dragged across the ground while being moved. The sled agents then took fingernail scrapings, a buccal DNA swab, and fingerprints. It was at this time that Lieutenant Shank noticed several self-defense wounds on the hands, noting that some of the fingernails were actually broken, as the victim likely fought her attacker in an effort to escape. After the body was placed onto a stretcher for transport, the sled agents employed the use of an ALS, or alternate light source, which would help them identify other potential injuries such as contusions and abrasions, which otherwise wouldn't be seen by the naked eye. It was at this point that information came through that a young woman by the name of Samantha Josephson went missing from the Columbia area, and much of her physical description matched the victim they were looking at now. Investigators with the Columbia Police Department were notified of this and the body was taken to the Clarendon County Coroner's Office. It was just a little after midnight on the 30th when Lieutenant Shank and Agent Jacek Serencian completed their crime scene walkthrough and roughly the same time as when the Josephsons, along with Greg and Samantha's roommates, were notified that Samantha's body had been identified as the one found in New Zion just hours earlier. As this case transitioned from a missing persons investigation to a homicide, Columbia police officers and investigators were now tasked with finding the killer, and it wouldn't take long at all for them to bring a suspect into custody. As the Josephsons, Greg, and Samantha's roommates all sat in a conference room and were notified of Samantha's tragic murder, patrol officers with the Columbia Police Department were patrolling the Five Points District. Word had come through law enforcement channels to keep an eye out for a newer black Chevy Impala. For a couple of hours, nothing had really caught the attention of the patrolling officers until around 2.30 in the morning when Officer Kraft began heading north on Hardin Street into the Five Points area. Throughout a majority of his shift, he had been keeping an eye out for a vehicle matching the description as had every other officer in Columbia, and although he had seen some in Paulus, none of them were black in color. But as Officer Kraft was driving up Hardin Street, he suddenly saw a black Chevy Impala in the left lane in front of him. Officer Kraft got behind the vehicle and began following it for a short distance. Believing this to be the vehicle of interest, Officer Kraft activated his blue lights for a traffic stop just as the Impala turned left and away from the Five Points District. The Impala pulled over and Officer Kraft got out and activated his body-worn camera while carefully approaching the driver's side of the vehicle. Inside of the car was a male driver with a female passenger. What's going on, sir? You got your license? With... You got your license on you? I'm Officer Kraft, Columbia Police Warrant K-9. You don't have no license on you. Why not? All right, man. Who's smoking the marijuana? I had smoked some earlier, sir, when I was at home. All right, right, man. You're going to step on out, man. Though it appeared that this was just another normal traffic stop, with the driver of the Impala seeming to comply with Officer Kraft's requests, just as the man was getting out of the vehicle, Officer Nunez arrived on scene for backup. Officer Kraft then began explaining why they initiated the traffic stop when the driver suddenly took off running. All right, here's the deal, man. 
I pulled your car over because it matches the suspect. Get your hand in your pocket. What are you, crazy? Get over here. Hey, get over here! Come on, run! Hey, I'm gonna release the dog! I can't, I was just gonna see if he'll stop. Bravo Mike, wearing a gray sweatpants, gray sweatshirt. Because all of the Columbia Police Department had already been on the lookout for a black Chevy Impala, patrol officers quickly began closing off routes the suspect could potentially escape from. Columbia Police Officer Nasia was able to quickly locate the suspect and swiftly take him into custody. Back at the Impala, Officer Kraft began questioning the suspect's passenger, inquiring about the smell of marijuana emanating from the vehicle. She identified herself as Maria Howard and explained that the driver was her boyfriend, Nathaniel. As the vehicle had presented an odor of marijuana and the suspect, who they then knew as 24-year-old Nathaniel Rowland, had fled from the scene, Columbia police officers had probable cause to search the vehicle for the possession of marijuana. When officers searched the vehicle and trunk, they found what appeared to be blood evidence in both places, in addition to on Nathaniel's person. They also located two cellular phones, one they believed belonged to Nathaniel and the other that appeared to belong to Samantha Josephson. For Lieutenant Shank and Agent Jacek Serencian, who had just arrived back at their field office, both were notified shortly after Nathaniel's arrest that their presence was required at his vehicle to collect evidence tied to the death investigation they had just attended two hours before. On the afternoon of March 30th, less than 12 hours after Nathaniel's apprehension, Columbia Police Chief William Skip Holbrook, Clarendon County Sheriff Tim Baxley, and Sled Chief Mark Hill held a press conference to announce their preliminary findings in the case. Uh, one of our canine officers was on patrol, a uh, very alert canine officer, I might add, observed a black Impala uh, approximately two blocks from five points. He initiated a traffic stop. The vehicle initially pulled over. The officer approached, to asked the driver to step out of the car, and the driver fled on foot. Uh, officer gave chase, uh, was able to make an apprehension after a short foot chase. When they returned back to the car, uh, further examination determined that there was what appeared to be blood present in the car. Earlier this afternoon, uh, the police department investigators, sled investigators, met with the Fifth Circuit Solicitor's Office. Due to the information presented, along with evidence collected by sled, um, sled will be charging our suspect. His name is, first name Nathaniel, N-A-T-H-A-N-I-E-L, middle name David, last name Roland, R-O-W-L-A-N-D, black male, date of birth 4-13-1994, with murder and kidnapping. Chief Holbrook explained that the presumed blood evidence found in the back of Nathaniel's car had been processed in the sled forensic lab and that it was consistent with that of Samantha Josephson. While there was still much left to do in the investigation, Chief Holbrook talked about the impact this case had not only on him and the community, but on that of the Josephson family, who had just tragically lost their daughter. I met with the family just before um, I came back to headquarters to, to brief you all. Our hearts are broken. I mean, they're broken. There is nothing tougher than to stand before a, a family and explain how a loved one was murdered. They have a lot of support here. They're from, they're from New Jersey. They have a lot of family that has come to town to support them. But it, it was gut-wrenching. Um, you know, the words really can't describe 
uh, obviously what they're going through. But, you know, one of the things that I talk to them about is how important these investigations are to us. We're, we're father, mothers, brothers, sisters, sons and daughters, and it's just as personal to us, and, and it always is a priority and, and will be a priority, and, and I assure them that we will be with them every step of the way until this is done. On the evening of March 31st, hundreds gathered at a candlelight vigil in honor of Samantha. Friends and fellow students shared stories, while Greg recalled the last phone conversation he shared with Samantha, and the very last words she ever spoke to him. The last words she said to me over FaceTime on Thursday were that I was her person and that she loved me. Other friends shared that they were always impressed with how Samantha was so genuine and that she was, quote, unapologetically herself, but would always go out of her way to make others feel included and special to her. For Seymour Josephson, Samantha's father, he was appreciative of the support of friends and family, but also the community of Columbia, many of whose residents didn't even know his daughter, but who came out to show support for her family. How you guys have come together, how you pulled this together, the support that you guys have, the support of the university, has been tremendous to us, to our friends, to our family. Although both he and his wife were suffering through an immeasurable amount of grief, they wanted to encourage those in the community to remain cautious and to be aware of their surroundings, and that when traveling, encouraged people to travel with friends together. He believed if Samantha weren't alone the night she went missing, it was very likely that she would have had a fighting chance against the alleged suspect. So she had the Uber, she called the Uber, had the black car, license plate, the name. She went up to one Uber and it wasn't right, that Uber was enough, so she went back. When I saw another black car pulled up, and so she jumped into it. Opened the door, the guy said, whatever, I don't know. She jumped in. She was by herself, right? And this is not that different about you guys. What we have learned is that you cannot, men or women, you guys have to travel together. At night, let's be honest, you guys are drinking, leaving the bar, or whatever it may be. You get into an Uber, you don't know if it's an Uber. You don't know anything about it. If there's two of you, something less likely will happen. Samantha was by herself. She had absolutely no chance. If there's somebody else in the car, there's actually a chance. So what I want to do is educate everybody, and not that I'm the smartest person here, but I've gone through this and I don't want anybody else to ever go through this again. The following day, on April 1st, both Seymour and Marcy Josephson arrived at the Richland County Courthouse to see the man accused of killing their daughter. Nathaniel waived his right to appear in court where they were scheduled to meet for his initial bond hearing. Although Nathaniel Rowland was not present in the courtroom, Marcy read aloud a statement to the court. There are no words to describe the immense pain his actions have caused our family and friends. He's taken away a piece of our heart, soul, and life 
Shame on him. We thought he would be here to see his evil face. I cannot fathom how someone could randomly select a person, a beautiful girl, and steal her life away. His actions were senseless, vile, and unacceptable. It sickens us to think that his face was the last thing that my baby girl saw on this earth. Does he even know her name? My daughter, Samantha Josephson, more affectionately known to her family as Sweet Pea. Let me tell you about my daughter. Samantha was bubbly, loving, kind, and full of life. She had a plan. She worked hard and was graduating from college in May and starting law school in September. Unlike him, Samantha valued human life and could never harm another soul. Unlike him, Samantha had love within her heart and purpose in her life, the life he brutally ended. He took away our daughter, a sister, a granddaughter, a niece, a cousin, and a friend to so many. His selfish, unspeakable, and violent actions have created a hole in the universe, a hole in our universe, and we see the unimaginable ripple affect her world. I implore the court to deny bail or the posting of a bond. He should never be given the right to walk free again for what he did to my daughter or given the opportunity to hurt anyone else. Samantha Josephson. My daughter's name is Samantha Josephson. Don't ever forget her name, Samantha Josephson. Shame on him. The news of Nathaniel's arrest had stunned his parents, who didn't believe their son was capable of such a violent crime. A belief strong enough that they stood behind their son and proclaimed his innocence. They relayed the information they had received from him directly to the media, but also stated that if he was involved as the police had alleged, they would want him to man up and to admit it. My son was telling me that Nate passed out at a house party. Yeah. He checked his pockets when he woke up. He checked his pockets. He didn't have his keys. So he walked outside to try to find his vehicle. He found the vehicle opened the door, seen his keys, and seen all the blood inside the vehicle. But if you didn't do it, I'm all out for you. You ain't got to worry about it. I'm behind you 100%. And I know he told me, he told my wife he didn't do it. And I know my wife ain't gonna lie about something like that. So I'm behind him 100%. But I can tell you one thing, my son's innocent. And I know that from the bottom of my heart. I wanna know. If you did this thing, and tell me, that's all I want to know. Tell me the doggone truth. But take a moment to think back to what Anders Lee said about finding the body. He explained that you just don't end up out in New Zion. And if you do, there's a reason you're out there in the first place. Nathaniel's parents' house, a place he called home until just a few months before the alleged crime, was only three miles away from where Samantha's body was discovered as the Roland family also lived in New Zion. Her body was left in a place that only someone who intimately knew the surroundings might know about. former neighbor who watched Nathaniel grow up was shocked to learn that he was the alleged suspect in Samantha Josephson's murder. He was a, a sweetheart, a gentleman. 
Like I said, you would never know him to do nothing like this. I knew him since a little boy. He always well-mannered, went to school, went to college, never got in trouble, and just still hard to believe that he may or may not did something like this. On April 3rd, 2019, just a few short days after Samantha was first reported missing, her body was transported to Robbinsville, New Jersey, where she had grown up. Hundreds gathered at the congregation Bath Chaim in Princeton Junction, New Jersey, the temple where Samantha had her bat mitzvah. Prior to the services, her uncle Seth Josephson read a statement to the media from the family. The sadness that is being suffered will never end. It may wane in the future, but will always leave a hole in the heart of a fun-loving, generous, kind parents and sister. Today, they don't know and can't contemplate how they can think of the future. The wonderful girl, sorry, the family's message that it hopes people, young adults for certain, take from this senseless killing other wonderful girl is that the rideshare community, Uber and Lyft, learn from this and take ownership of the fortune made by their customers. That it provides safeguards to avoid the mistake that are easily made the mistake that took Sammy from us. During the service, Seymour Josephson, Samantha's father, spoke about his daughter whom he loved so much and reflected upon her infectious personality. She's as kooky and laughable and lighthearted and one of the best kids that you'll ever meet in your entire life. Back in South Carolina, the Columbia Police Department, in conjunction with SLED and the Clarendon County Sheriff's Office, began working to piece together the puzzle of what had occurred in the early morning hours of March 29th that ultimately led to Samantha's tragic murder. Investigators began by obtaining a search warrant for the home of Maria Howard, where Nathaniel was living at the time of the crime. Agent Jacek Serencian arrived on scene on behalf of SLED and began processing items recovered from a nearby dumpster. Inside, she was able to locate both garbage and grocery bags that contained bedsheets that appeared to be stained with a blood-like substance. Also inside some of the bags were blue vinyl gloves, paper towels, a pair of black gloves, cleaning wipes, and a multi-tool, which contained two blades parallel to one another. These items were all collected and logged in as evidence. Inside Maria Howard's home, Agent Jacek Serencian found a pink Adidas shoe that belonged to Maria's young child that appeared to have blood-like stains on it. Inside of the master bedroom, she found what appeared to be more blood-like stains on a gray pillowcase, as well as another black glove matching the pair found in the dumpster that had staining and appeared to have some type of hair attached to it. In the backyard of the home, Agent Jacek Serencian noted what appeared to be fresh tire tracks in the yard, as if a vehicle were trying to conceal itself in the confines of the backyard. This would later line up with what Maria Howard would eventually tell investigators. On the morning of March 29th, Maria Howard awoke and started preparing for work at around 5.30 a.m. She noticed the home was unusually quiet. When she went to bed the evening prior, Nathaniel was sitting on the couch watching television. As she walked down the stairs, she saw that he was nowhere to be found. 
She found this odd because just hours before, Nathaniel told her that he would be there to take her to her 7 a.m. shift the next morning. Not only that, when Maria's child was away at her mother's home, Nathaniel knew that Maria didn't like to be alone in the house. Maria, who was clearly upset at this point, began calling and texting Nathaniel, asking him where he was, but she didn't get a response. While she could stand being upset about Nathaniel disappearing, she refused to be late to work and started calling her mother to ask for a ride. Just as she was about to get off the phone with her mom, she saw Nathaniel pulling into their driveway. At this point, Maria was already late for work and realized that both her work shirt and visor were in Nathaniel's car. She walked outside and asked him where her shirt was, but when he handed it over to her, it was soaking wet. Nathaniel previously told his girlfriend that he would wash and dry her shirt when he went to his sister's house the day before. But obviously, that hadn't happened, and she asked Nathaniel why the shirt was wet. He said nothing. Maria then walked to the back of the car in search of her work visor, the one she had left in the back window the day before, but she was unable to locate it. She asked Nathaniel where it was. Nathaniel stated, It's out in the country. To which Maria responded, Uh, why is it out in the country? Nathaniel then replied, Because it has blood on it. Maria then asked Nathaniel why there would be blood on her work hat that was now sitting out in the country, to which he replied, Mind your business. After speaking to her supervisor and explaining that she was on the way but didn't have her visor, Maria and Nathaniel began driving towards her job, but he had to stop for gas. While Maria was sitting in the car, she began to notice what appeared to be dried blood on the dashboard. As she began looking around the vehicle, she saw more and more of the dried substance. When Maria looked in the back seat of the car, she noticed that a bed sheet had been draped over a majority of the back bench seat, but had remained exposed on the lower half. It was there where she saw a considerably higher concentration of dried blood. When Nathaniel got back into the Impala, Maria asked him, Why is there so much blood? Did you hit a dog or something? Nathaniel once again replied, Mind your business. Shortly after, Maria arrived at work and told Nathaniel what time she would be off so he could pick her up. He told her he would be there, but after an eight-hour shift, Nathaniel was nowhere to be found. After standing around for a while and never hearing back from Nathaniel, one of Maria's co-workers offered to drive her home. She was hopeful that Nathaniel was there as she had given him the keys to her home so he could get some rest, because according to her recollection, he looked rough that morning as if he hadn't slept at all. When she arrived back at home, the front door was locked, so she began banging on the door. When Nathaniel answered, Maria stated he looked, quote, shook, and appeared as if he had just seen a ghost. And while she had many questions and was visibly frustrated with Nathaniel, she walked past him and headed for the bathroom to take a shower. Maria noticed that Nathaniel was still wearing the clothes he had been wearing the evening before and asked him why he hadn't yet taken a shower, or in her own words, why he hadn't, quote, washed his ass yet. Nathaniel didn't answer and walked out back to where the Impala was parked. After washing the remnants of her workday away in the shower, Maria got dressed and walked outside to tell Nathaniel they needed to drive to her mother's house to collect some money and to see her child. 
but she noticed that he was ferociously scrubbing at the back seat of the car. As she got closer, the odor emanating from the sedan was that of bleach, but according to Maria, it was so strong that it smelled more like chlorine than bleach. She waited for the vehicle to air out before stating that she would drive. When they finally began departing towards her mother's home, Nathaniel reached into the back seat and pulled out some sort of chemical wipes and began wiping the dashboard. He then pulled out a concealed multi-tool with multiple blades and began cleaning it meticulously. Maria questioned Nathaniel as to why he was so concerned with cleaning the car, but yet again, she was met with the same response. Mind your business. After meeting with her mother, Maria placed her child into a car seat in the back seat of the Impala, much to Nathaniel's displeasure. She inquired why he was so upset that she had to bring her child home in the car, to which Nathaniel explained, Because there's blood back there. The truth was, she had no other option, so she had to place her child in the back seat to get them home safely. On the drive back to the house, Maria noticed something else in the car she hadn't noticed previously. A brand new rose gold iPhone that appeared to belong to a woman. Maria asked Nathaniel where he got the phone, and he stated that he had simply found it. Just hours later, at around 3 o'clock in the morning, it would all begin to make sense. As investigators continued working the case, they began to uncover more pieces to the mysterious puzzle of Samantha Josephson's death. Among the additional evidence recovered from Nathaniel's car was a scrap of notepaper with a terrifying list attached. Number one, duct tape. Number two, tape hole body. Number three, gloves. Number four, gasoline. Number five, matches. The list, while not necessarily related to the crime scene in which Samantha was discovered, painted the possibility of Nathaniel looking at future attacks, or at the very least, showed that he had been potentially planning additional crimes. Investigators were notified that someone had attempted to use Samantha's debit card in the hours after she went missing. Surveillance video from the ATM showed a man dressed in what appeared to be a black hooded sweatshirt, with a hood scrunched around the face allowing only the eyes to be seen. They also learned that a man had brought Samantha's phone into Cellular City, attempting to sell it to the owner of the store. The owner explained that when the cell phone was brought to him, it was already missing its SIM card, and that he took steps to retrieve the phone's serial number, which had taken him roughly 15 to 20 minutes. While that information was being recorded into his system, he and the man talked about a price for the phone trying to come up with a satisfactory number that pleased both parties. Because the phone hadn't been reported stolen early on March 29th, there were no alarms in his system indicating the phone may have been stolen. Ultimately, neither the owner nor the man could come to an agreement on a price, so the man ultimately left with the phone. The owner of that store later identified Nathaniel Rowland as the man who brought him the phone that day. On April 25th, 2019, 24-year-old Nathaniel Rowland was formally charged with one count of murder, one count of kidnapping, and an added count of possession of a weapon during the commission of a violent crime. He would ultimately plead not guilty to the charges leveled against him. Just over a year later, on June 9th, 2020, 
A bond hearing was held via teleconference due to the ongoing pandemic and whether bond was applicable to Nathaniel's situation. It wasn't uncommon at this time for inmates across the country to have a new bail hearing due to the uncertainty of trials. Also attending the bond hearing were members of the Josephson family. Marcy, Samantha's mother, explained to Richland County Judge Deandra Benjamin why the family believed Nathaniel shouldn't be allowed bond. He is sick and evil. He's a danger to society and possesses a significant risk to others. I pray he hears her screams and pictures the violent act he did when he closes his eyes or has a moment of peace. That's what I see and hear every day. Nathaniel's public defender, Tracy Pinnock, responded by explaining they were simply at a bond hearing and not a trial and continue to proclaim her client's innocence. But Judge Benjamin ultimately denied bond for Nathaniel, as she believed he could be a danger to society if permitted to post bond. On July 20th, 2021, Nathaniel Rowland's trial began. When the state solicitors began their opening statements, they opined that in their belief, Nathaniel had targeted Samantha from the moment he first laid eyes on her, and surveillance video footage from the Five Points District would show that he passed her as she waited for her Uber numerous times, eventually pulling into the parking spot and allowing her to enter his vehicle. Once Samantha was inside of the black Chevy Impala, the state solicitors alleged that Nathaniel was then able to engage the window and child safety locks from the driver's seat, which prevented Samantha from escaping. The state continued by explaining that Samantha's boyfriend, Greg, had been tracking her location to make sure she had made it home safely but that her phone had oddly stopped sharing its location roughly 20 minutes after she first got into what she believed to be her Uber. GPS geo-tracking from Nathaniel's phone eventually showed that his phone appeared to be traveling along with Samantha's at the same time and in the same direction. Nathaniel's phone kept tracking as he drove away from Columbia on Sumter Highway all the way to the rural community of New Zion. The state solicitors then explained that the jury would hear about the evidence recovered from the dumpster near Maria Howard's home, where Nathaniel was staying at the time, and that certain evidence would show Nathaniel took active steps to conceal that evidence. The state also explained that they would be hearing from the forensic pathologist who conducted the autopsy after Samantha's body was recovered. When the defense started their arguments, one of Nathaniel's defense attorneys, Alicia Good, told the jury that there was no evidence her client had kidnapped or killed Samantha. She also stated that there was no DNA of Nathaniel's that was ever discovered on Samantha's remains. When Dr. Thomas Beaver was called to the stand, he explained to the jury that when he received the body, it was quickly apparent that Samantha was covered in sharp force injuries from literally head to toe. But what stood out most to Dr. Beaver was that each puncture wound appeared to have a parallel dual marking next to it. Because of the abnormal markings, Dr. Beaver began to wonder if there was perhaps a second murder weapon involved. The first step was to take an x-ray of the body, but because of the numerous injuries, he had to take 13 x-rays instead of the normal 3 to 4, in an effort to check if the tip of a knife had potentially broken off inside of her body during the attack. Dr. Beaver then explained that typically in knife attacks, a knife will likely break off at the tip or bend when it strikes bone 
but because he hadn't found a metallic tip inside of her body, he would have to wait until a possible murder weapon was recovered to confirm whether or not it was used in the crime. But after the double-bladed multi-tool was eventually presented to him after being recovered inside of Maria Howard's home, it was quickly evident that it was the likely weapon used in Samantha Josephson's murder. One of the blades on the tool was horribly bent, but it was that second blade that ultimately explained the bizarre parallel markings that Dr. Beaver initially believed to have come from a second weapon. What struck Dr. Beaver as perhaps most odd was the amount of stab wounds that Samantha had on her body, as he eventually stopped counting after detailing some 110 penetrating wounds. The pattern of violence showed that whomever had attacked her had done so with such callousness and a sense of brutality, the likes of which he had never seen before. Dr. Beaver also explained just how little blood actually remained in Samantha's body after it was discovered. As you performed the autopsy on Miss Josephson, how much blood was found in her body? It was not a lot. Um, I found 20 milliliters in the pleural cavity, right pleural cavity, and really, we had, we had difficulty obtaining the blood that we used for toxicology. And so 20 milliliters is about how much, if you could, in, again, in layman's terms, tell us what 20 milliliters yeah, looks like. Maybe uh, an eighth of a cup. Okay. So about this much? Yes, yeah, a couple tablespoons, maybe three. After five days of trial and testimony from experts such as Lieutenant Schenk, Agent Jacek Serencian, and Dr. Thomas Beaver, both sides rested their cases and began preparing for closing arguments. The defense didn't call anyone to the stand during the trial, as Nathaniel had invoked his Fifth Amendment rights. They chose instead to focus the majority of their efforts on cross-examining the state's witnesses. The defense stated that none of the evidence presented by the state tied Nathaniel to the kidnapping and murder further explaining that after he was arrested, he had no bruises or lacerations on his body. They further explained that there was no DNA that belonged to Nathaniel found on Samantha's body. According to defense attorney Tracy Pinnock, she believed the state was so focused on closing the case that they arrested the wrong person altogether. They created a narrative, and he's the villain in their narrative. For them, he's the easy answer. In this case... It's the wrong answer. The state, however, explained that DNA recovered from the scrapings collected underneath Samantha's fingernails was consistent with that of the alleged suspect, Nathaniel Rowland. They also explained how Nathaniel took steps to conceal evidence to avoid suspicion of involvement in the crime. He took her from five points. He took her life. And he took the time to try to erase all the evidence, to try to erase her. Once closing arguments had concluded, the jury was sent away for deliberations, but after just an hour, they had returned with a unanimous verdict. State of South Carolina, versus Nathaniel David Rowland, is indicted for possession of a weapon during the commission of a violent crime. Read the jury find the defendant guilty. Please sign four person jury number 130. July 27, 2021. Indictment number 2019, GS 42450, the state of South Carolina versus Nathaniel David Rowland. It's an indictment for murder. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty. Four persons. 
This is signed by the foreperson during my third July 27, 2021. The very same day Nathaniel Rowland was found guilty of murdering Samantha Josephson, he was set for immediate sentencing. Prior to that decision, however, the defense asked if Nathaniel's mother could provide a statement to the court for consideration. But throughout her statement, she tried making assertions that the judge was not going to put up with. The state had accused our son of a crime that he had, didn't commit. You Ma'am, know, I'm not going to okay. hear All right. any claim of, of innocence. Okay. He's been convicted he, by the jury. Okay. He's a very caring young man. This is a young man who went through high school, college, played ball, active in his trip, never had anything against him. Now, I know as a mother, and a mother knows her child, I know my son didn't do this. I know. How do you but, know that? Sir. How do you know that? By the way I raised him. Pardon? By the way I raised him. And when you are a mother, and you are a truly good mother, and you raise your child in the right way, you would know when that child had done something or did something right or wrong. I can't. I can't. And I know he didn't do this. Now, but I'm not here. He claimed that of what okay. he did or didn't do. Yes, he is guilty of murder. He's yes, guilty of, of kidnapping. Yes, He's guilty of possession of a weapon during the commission of a violent crime. And if you had any any testimony that you wanted to give for the jury to consider, the trial was the time to do that. I'm not listening to any claim of what he did not do. While Nathaniel's mother was eager to speak on behalf of her son, it was the Josephson family whose impact statements were truly that, impactful. Seymour Josephson read from the over 90 impact statements that friends and family had collected since Samantha's tragic murder. Afterward, he explained how he wished he could do what any father would want to do in a similar situation, to give the convicted man sitting in front of him a taste of his own medicine. I have no idea how to get through this. I wear my emotions on my sleeve, so I apologize. I have a book here that was created from family and friends. In here are over 90 impact statements of friends and family of how they've been devastated for the last 28 months. I only wish that you wrote, uh, read these, of how impactful it has hit my community, my friends, and my family. He took her life, he took her life, only an animal or monster does that. Judge. I only wish we could inflict the same or more pain he inflicted upon Sammy. Please, I beg you, please, give him life and never see the light. After all was said and done, Nathaniel Rowland was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Samantha's family have continued advocating for rideshare safety throughout college campuses and across the nation for public knowledge. 
They have since started the What's My Name Foundation to honor their daughter and to spread awareness for rideshare safety. Their motto, Sammy, in honor of Samantha, stands for Stop, Ask, Match, and Inform. The group's efforts have advanced alongside several key pieces of proposed legislation. In May of 2019, New Jersey State Representative Christopher Smith introduced Bill H.R. 3262 into federal legislation, a bill affectionately known as Sammy's Law. The bill would have required rideshare drivers to display prominently well-lit signs on their vehicles, in addition to requiring visible posting of scannable QR codes, which would allow prospective riders to effectively verify that the vehicle they are about to enter indeed belongs to their agreed-upon driver. That legislation has since stalled out and has not advanced further after questions surrounding whether or not rideshare drivers are legally considered employees or independent contractors, raising questions over who ultimately maintains responsibility of the largely regulatory conditions proposed. Another piece of bipartisan legislation known as the Samantha L. Josephson Ridesharing Safety Act was introduced immediately following Samantha's murder in April of 2019. The act made it a crime for someone to impersonate a rideshare driver and also requires drivers to visibly display license plates in the front of their vehicles to ensure that waiting passengers can verify the identities of their driver before stepping foot inside the vehicle. To learn more about the What's My Name Foundation and other ongoing efforts, visit whatsmyname.org. Let's face it, cell phones are convenient. They have literally become all-in-one devices, capable of just about anything. Whether you're photographing a picturesque sunset, searching for resources cataloged in the Library of Congress, or simply ordering takeout or a ride home, convenience, as we've learned, does not always equal safety. And it seems the very mechanisms that make such services as rideshare and food delivery so fast, easy, and convenient are the very facets which also make them so easily exploitable by those wishing to do harm. Inasmuch as we never truly know someone randomly walking down the street, we never truly know how someone conducts themselves in their personal space, whether it be their car or their home, until we courageously step foot inside this new crowdsourcing culture. In the words of Samantha Josephson's father, exercise caution, travel in groups, and stay safe.